Davenport is a former colleague of mine. He's an extremely experienced asset manager who's spent years with vendors like Flexera and ServiceNow, as well as having an MBA and experience in IT business administration. Aaron is also a master and connoisseur of coffee. Welcome to Ticket Volume, news and information for improving IT experiences, powered by Invigate. Welcome to Ticket Volume, Aaron. It is a pleasure to be here, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for joining. I can tell that we could talk about coffee for hours and hours, but we're not here to do that. We're going to geek out instead on asset management, something a little bit more nerdy, I'll say. So you've been in this space for decades, doing work with all sorts of clients, even some that we've shared, and, and you've been part of every phase of the journey. What I think would be most valuable for people to hear is what roadblocks do you typically come across in asset management? I, I wish I could say that there is a, a cookbook for asset management, but really to explain their roadblocks, I would really like to explain first that each corporation, each enterprise uh, has a different DNA when it comes to what works for them for asset management and what uh, medicine that may be good for one company may be very toxic to another company. So it's hard to say, hey, here's your magic pill. Here's your magic answer. So a lot of that comes with experience. I can say software asset management's commonly sprung from one or two major events. And that's what gets everyone started down that path of, hey, we should invest in software asset management. Those events usually revolve around software audits because they're very expensive. What I've found that is most effective in any organization, no matter what it is, for software asset management is having the buy-in from leadership and getting the right people in place and the right processes in place. Take the technology out for a little while and get that buy-in first to say, yes, this is important. And then you can start tackling from different parts of the organization, how are we, based on our DNA, going to attack software asset management? That totally makes sense. Uh, prescriptive approach, not knowing what's going to work. You have to test the waters and figure out what's going to work for the culture. But I like that. That's an overarching advice that you can give. Make sure that there's buy-in. When you think about asset management then next, what are some of the, the key methods and key practices within asset management that you're honing based on the organizational needs? One of the first things and one of the hardest things is the visibility into your procurement data. It, it sounds so simple at, at a top level, but especially in large organizations, you might have varying methods, varying vendors, varying VARs of how you purchase things. Business owners can go out and purchase things. You could purchase it centrally through an ID department. People have P cards. There's all these different ways. Getting a grasp on what you're buying and who is buying it is probably one of the most major steps you can do because most organizations have a pretty elaborate inventory system. They know what is out there, but they don't know how they bought it. So mm -hmm. being able to get that information is vital. Once you get that information, how you process it, how you do things with it to say, okay, here's what we actually own. Here is my entitlement. That's the next phase of that, a step one and step two thing. Okay. Yeah. I like that. A clear inventory and 
Yeah, you're right. There should always be a central place where you're procuring stuff, but it just doesn't exist, especially in complex orgs. Have you ever seen like regional differences or vertical differences? If I'm in healthcare or I'm in the UK and I'm a manufacturer, like what do you see across the world and across industries being varying in asset management? Varying or the same, because honestly, when you talk about software asset management as a whole, there's not a lot of variance. You either do it and you don't. Yeah. There's different ways to get there, but there's not a lot of variance in that. So there's a lot of similarities, even though you think, okay, in the healthcare industry, there's going to be a lot of PHI data and things that mm -hmm. your security is going to go crazy if gets out there. Software asset management, even though it's highly intrusive into the organization, into the information that software asset management needs to know, those are the things it doesn't need to know. It doesn't need to know mm. personal information and things like that. It's not anonymized per se, but you can do software asset management to where, hey, I don't have that information that, that could get me in trouble. Mm -hmm. And that goes with GDPR as well. There's a misconception that, oh, well, I can't do software asset management in the UK because I'm a US company. And what about GDPR? Really, if you look at the laws of GDPR and what they're looking at as far as data and what's going across the pond, yes, you can do that. You just have to be very meticulous in how you collect that information. But I wouldn't say there's a lot of differences. I've seen the same process work in manufacturing that I've seen work in healthcare, that I've seen worked in entertainment industries. It, it, it doesn't vary that much until you get down into the weeds and into the underlying details of who's doing what, when, and where. Yeah, yeah. That's totally it. What software do you actually need? Are you going to have to be managing Oracle licenses? Are they CPU based and core based and like those details? That's really where the, the rubber hits the road. Absolutely. So what are some, like you mentioned GDPR, what are some compliance standards that you keep up with and understand and are always tracking towards. Are there certification standards? There's some ITAM certifications that I'm always, I'll follow on LinkedIn and, and do all of that. There's certification tests you can do. There's also just a huge peer network in software asset management, regardless of what industry you're in we're all fighting the same bat battle. There's really two sides of it. There's the consumer side of software asset management. And then of course you have the producer side of software asset management. They want to make sure that their intellectual property is being properly paid for. So it, it's not that they're the bad guys and we're the good guys. It's more of, we see things differently than you do. And let's come to an agreement on how we see things so we can get along at least better than what we currently do usually but yeah so the, there are those things but the peer network is vital reaching out to people on your social networks and saying hey i'm seeing this in my organization and you don't have to give specifics nobody needs to sign any ndis and things like that just say here's a theme i'm seeing and you'll be amazed at the responses you'll get out of that from people that have been through a similar, if not the exact same situation you've been in. And I find that as, if not more valuable than the certifications, because the certifications are like a lab environment. Everything's going to go the exact same way every time in a certification. The answer is either yes or no. Software asset management's a gray area. 
So that takes experience and navigation to work out. It's not just a, the answer is always yes or the answer is always no. The answer is most times maybe. And then how do you navigate that? Okay. Okay. So you've had a team of asset management, like participants, process participants. You've been through the procedure lots of times. What, what are some points or advice you would give for managing teams doing this work? My first advice would be, and this sounds so cliche, don't boil the ocean. Get good at one small thing. Whether that be, again, like we talked about earlier, let's figure out where I'm buying stuff. Maybe it's just as simple as let's figure out all those different sources. Before we even talk about getting those into one place, where is it all? Get good Mm -hmm. at that and know you've got that right before you move on to the next step. And have a plan and stick to it. Just say, okay, my first six months, we're just going to figure out where we're buying things. Then the next year, we're going to integrate that into a centralized database. We're going to figure out what fields we need, where we need it, and get that automated to where we have an overarching view of that procurement. Then the next six months, we're going to analyze that data and say, okay, in that data, there's errors. There's problems in these columns and these things. And then we're going to go back and work with data entry to say, hey, this is the way we need it going forward. And those timelines are generic in different companies. They can work different ways, but get good at one thing. That way you can actually do the next one and build your foundation on solid data that's trustworthy. It's like a CMDB or anything else in, a, in an environment. If you don't trust the data, anything you build on top of it will crumble. <laughs> That's awesome. You just gave away an asset management strategy on the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, though. You are only as good as your data and taking those baby steps, starting with the foundational element and then expanding from there. That totally makes sense. There's a lot of areas where that makes sense. So let's talk about what you mentioned right away at the beginning which is where asset management comes from and why leaders buy in. And that is that audit or a true uptime or whatever you want to call it. How do you defend against findings? Like what does that actually look like when a software manufacturer reaches out and you find something? Usually there's a triggering event of some sort, either the contracts coming to an end, there's been maybe somebody in the organization reached out to the vendor and asked uh, specific questions like, Hey, How much do I own of X, which would make them think they don't know what they're using? Those type of things usually will trigger some audits. I can say we get audit letters out of the blue as well. Again, the COVID era when companies weren't buying as much software, the the vendors had to get another revenue stream going. So obviously there was an uptick in audits. But overall, there's usually some sort of triggering event. I'm not surprised anymore whenever I get that letter. However, to navigate it, the first thing you do is you say, okay, is this something I should be concerned about? Because of mm. contractually, you may have a no audit clause. They might not even legally have a right to audit. So you might want to read real quick before you make that quick response of, hey, uh-oh, I got an audit letter. That's what they want you to do. They want you to get scared. Mm-hmm. So my first thing is to say, don't panic. You may owe them money. You may not owe them money. 
but they don't know as much about your environment as you do. So get your facts straight. You may find out that, hey, we're compliant or we're overpaying this vendor. And you might say, (laughs) sure, here's what you need. Go ahead. But don't let them just come in and run what they want to run and do what they want to do. Get your facts straight first. Okay. If you have the right to audit, thank you. I've received your letter. I need time to research and, and make sure I get all the ducks in the row so we can respond to you in a timely manner. That might be mm-hmm. me getting my legal team involved. That might be me looking at all my inventory. But all those things, remember that they're going to try to rush you. Don't rush. Take your time. Be intelligent about it. And then that way you can come up with what is the right position and the right place to be. Because in the end, we're software asset management, but my philosophy is, hey, software asset management isn't just about saving money. Sometimes it's about spending money. It's about Mm -hmm. being compliant. It's about toting that line between not overpaying for stuff and not overusing stuff. I love it. That is such good advice. (laughs) Again, in other walks of life too, like just don't panic. Don't get too excited. Think about it. Respond in an orderly fashion. I I try to take that advice to heart (laughs) regularly and fail (laughs) miserably. It's easier to do in a corporate world than our personal lives for sure. I I agree. (laughs) True that. Okay, so I'm going to ask you one more uh, very specific question about an asset manager's life because I, I feel like this is another area where people just either don't understand it or they don't know what to do, and that is in those contracts. When you're reviewing a contract, how do you read it? Do you always send it to legal? Are you pairing with someone in legal to read it? What are you looking out for when you're reading those? To be honest, I would prefer to always send it to legal and not have to read it myself. In the real world, uh, that doesn't always happen. Some companies, their legal team is either somebody, a buddy they call or non-existent altogether. Again, these contracts can have multiple amendments. They can have a lot of jargon in them. They can have a lot of things in them that don't pertain to asset management or specifically software asset management. One of the common things I will do is I will... Let's say it's a 70-page document. I will skim through really quick and look for numbers, dates, quantities, whatever numbers I can see. Usually you'll see those in tables or in the um, amendments section. You'll see them in just different schedules is what they call them. Once you see the numbers, um, and I usually don't just read contracts on the weekend. That's not, you know, how I do it. So let's not just say I'm a, I just pull them up and read them. It's more of usually that's triggered by an event. I'm not going to read vendor X contract unless, hey, we're getting ready to do an ELP on this. Let's, let's, let me refresh myself on what this is. So then I'll know specific terms or things I'm looking for, starts and end dates of my maintenance, specific products I might be looking for. And the product quantities likely, unless they're specific vendors, won't be in there. So then I would say, okay, here's my terms and conditions. Here's my second use rights and all this stuff for this software. Now I've got to marry that back with my invoicing systems and my purchasing systems to make sure that, hey, here's where I actually paid for and here's my quantities for those licenses. So you got to marry those two together. But really, I look, my process and everybody's different. I look for numbers. I'm a numbers guy. Cool. 
Man, great advice. There's a ton in there. If you're looking for more in asset management, where can people find you, Aaron? I'm obviously on LinkedIn. Feel free to hit me up on there. And I enjoy taking questions like this. Open to anyone at any time. It does sometimes take me a little while to respond. But if you do message me, I will respond. Or that or the local coffee shop. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, you're likely to find Aaron there. (laughs) To our audience, thank you for hitting play. And I'll see you around the way. I'm your host, Matt Barron. You can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook as Matt Barron. Don't forget to post a review or send feedback of our podcast. Subscribe to Ticket Volume on your favorite podcast platforms. And thank you for listening to Ticket Volume, a podcast powered by Invigate.